Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54. Um, this morning's passage, if you don't have a Bible, can be found on page 614 in the Pew Bibles. Thanks for being so excited to greet one another. Let everybody make their way. That's awesome. All right, this morning we're going to start a new series where we're just looking at this idea of making room. Um, that's, you're going to see that, that evident in the passage that we're going to look at this morning from Isaiah 54. And yes, hi. Sorry, like that was loud. So no worries. Um, yeah, this is live unscripted. So I want to just begin um, by telling you a story. Right, so my wife and I, it will be 19 years of marriage this January. So, um, yeah, yay for us, all right. Um, Thanks for the applause. But I I don't consider us in any way heroic, right? But our life has been an adventure. And so there there have been certain seasons where um, we've stepped out in faith and we've done things and uh, there, there's one season in particular that I, I, I fully didn't appreciate until um, more recently what we actually did. And so there was a period of time from 2004 to 2006 where we just made a transition upon transition upon transition. So 2004, it's the fall of the year, I believe. I, I don't always get the details right. She'll tell me if I'm right later. We purchased our dream home. So we are on the street where we think we are possibly going to grow old together. There are friends on every side of us. We're in small group together. This was a really fruitful season. We had a three-year-old daughter and an almost one-year-old son, um, and and things were going really well until um, I had an opportunity to kind of go to seminary um, that just kind of dropped in my lap a few months later. So we owned our dream house for about three months. And um, my pastor brought me into his office and said, hey, what would you think about the possibility of relocating to Washington, D.C. to study for a year and then join me later in Atlanta? And so, man, I was excited about that. I'd always felt called to be a pastor and so to have that opportunity. But that meant, right, at that very moment that we were going to have to let go of our dream home. And that was a big step forward. Then we relocated to Washington, D.C., and that was just a, a, it actually was a hard experience, to be honest. So we had a, a certain dynamic happening in our family, we had two kids, uh, but rent in the D.C. area is astronomical, and so to save money, we lived in someone's basement, and they were super kind family. And we, I remember Jen in that season trying to make um, just this basement, our home. And so that meant lots of picnics with Wendy's 99-cent value menus, like, on the floor, right? Um, and that's why my kids won't eat chicken nuggets till this day. Um, we did that a lot that year. And I, I remember one thing, that she would, we didn't have a kitchenette. And so anytime we, used, we had, like, these few little cups that we would use and plates, and she would have to do them in the bathroom sink. And it's just, you know, just a small thing that you don't think about, you know, when you're going to live in someone's basement for a year. So, so appreciate that. 
Well, over the course of that year, we, our family grew from two to the potential of three. We became pregnant with uh, our second son, Hudson, and by we, I mean Jen. And um, <laughs> we had this impending move to Atlanta, and so she's already pregnant. And you can imagine already being stir-crazy living in someone's basement. So, and I'm going to just share a little bit of wisdom. So if you ever ask your wife to give up her dream home and live in someone's basement, I would suggest letting her buy the next house. And that's exactly what we did. Sent her on a trip to Atlanta, no questions asked, gave her a budget, and she did a fine job finding our family home. The only catch with that is that it wasn't going to be ready until a uh, a month after that we arrived in Atlanta. So that meant that we were going to have to live with a friend, this time not in a basement. We lived in a room over their garage. So the garage had all of our stuff in the bottom that we had to unload. And and my wife and now our two kids, who's very pregnant, are living in this apartment over our friend's garage. Now, eventually we made it through that season, right? We finally made it to our new home. But there just was this pressing in, and there was a real sense of urgency that was like, hey, we have to make room here, right? I mean, we are outgrowing the idea that we can just be this tiny family that relocates and lives in people's basements and rooms over the garage. Like, we have to have our own space, right? And so what we're going to encounter as we look at this series is just the idea that God wants us, as the people of God, to have an orientation towards growth, Right? That because of who he is and what he's done in sending his son, that we're always looking to make room. We're always looking to look outside of ourselves, to look outside of our own comfort zones. We're looking for God to do what he has promised to do. And that's um, honestly why we're doing some of the uh, decisions that we're making in regards to gospel communities. Because we want to make room. And we want to take the next three weeks really just to kind of unpack why we're doing those things. That God um, has us as a church family looking not just to our own needs, but to increasingly look to the needs of the city. And to do that, we have to be rooted and we have to be grounded um, in who God says he is and who he says we are, right? Our basis for hope is not just that we would have it all together in and of ourselves, but that God himself has sent a savior into the world. So Isaiah 54 is a promise from God what he plans to do through his Messiah, Jesus. And as the church, we are um, just invited to labor and to long for God to do the things that he says he's going to do. And that's what we're going to see in Isaiah 54. I'm going to read the first four verses. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, this will also be on the screen in your able. Would you stand with me just because we want to just give honor to God's word. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let your curtain. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations. 
and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you just pause and pray with me? Father, right now, we so want to continue just in your presence as your people, just receiving the inheritance already of Isaiah 54, that the gospel has made its way all the way here to the ends of the earth, to Jonesboro, Arkansas, from a promise that you made 700 years before Jesus was even on the scene. Thank you that it's reached even us, and I pray that you would help us to live and labor in light of what you promised to do in making all things new. I pray that you would um, join our hearts together, not just as isolated individuals, but as a, as a beautiful people among whom you are treasured and adored and you're making into something beautiful. To do that, we need you to speak to us. We need you to help um, apply this word to our hearts so that makes a difference um, in how we live our lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at this passage in three sections this morning. First, we're going to just look at Isaiah 54, and we're going to just try to understand what it's about. Um, this is a beautiful picture of what God promises to do. And then we're going to look at two points of application, things that we're trying to do as a local church to be faithful to the things that God has already promised to do. Um, this is an Old Testament picture of Jesus and what he promises to do. It comes right on the heels of Isaiah 53. If you're familiar with that, that is a, a picture of Jesus who lays down his life, who is like a lamb that's led to a slaughter, where he lays down his life. He carries our sorrows and our griefs, and it says, by his stripes we're healed. Like, all the fruit that happens in Isaiah chapter 54 comes because there is a Messiah who comes and lays down his life for the sheep. So all the things that we're going to talk about, all the things that we dream about, all the things that we're hoping in is tied to the fruit of who Jesus is and what he came to do, which brings me um, to my first point. This, this whole passage is about this image of making room. There's an image of a tent that's being stretched out and growing bigger. And my first point this morning is making room in our hearts for God's vision. Making room in our hearts. Vision begins in our hearts. Um, the truth is we are all visionary people, right? You may have this very detailed vision of your life. You may have a mission statement. You may have goals. You may have those really cool golf photos hanging up in your office that has motivational speakers kind of things on them, right? You may be that kind of person. Um, or you may be living for an alternative vision, right? I mean, your vision may by default be Netflix and Cheetos. But we are all, right, <laughs> we're all living for a picture of some kind of reality. And what God invites us to do in Isaiah 54 is to examine his vision, right? The things that he has promised to do and align our life and our heart with who he is and what he has promised to do. And the really cool thing about Isaiah 54 is that it's written to a group of people that don't have it all together, right? In fact, this is a group of people that had actually turned their back on God, right? 
They had been indifferent to the poor. They were actually oppressing the poor. And in the midst of that, God sends a promise to say, I'm going to do something in your midst that's not based on your faithfulness, but based on my faithfulness. And so what we're going to look at this morning is that because of God's faithfulness, regardless of your past, regardless of where you consider yourself presently, God has just this idea that we can live in the good of who he is and what he's done. Now we're going to look at three different images in Isaiah 54. It's kind of held together by three pictures. And the first picture is that of a barren woman in verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through um, 10, there is this picture of a lonely wife that's going to be comforted by her husband. And then finally, it's a desolate city that is made into something that's beautiful and lasting by the power of God. And that's what this whole passage is about. God saying, I'm going to make things that are unfruitful, fruitful. I'm going to be at work bringing comfort and healing and restoration to my people. And then I'm going to make them into something beautiful together, right? As Americans, we think it's our God-given right to life and liberty and to our own pursuit of happiness. But what God's plan for our rejoicing is to bring us together with other people and to make something beautiful in the way that we live our lives together. So God is um, inviting us to allow this vision to shape our heart. And because God doesn't do anything small or sporadic or random or disconnected, the things that he wants to do for us, he intends to allow to bear fruit in our lives towards the world. Look at verse 3. He says, Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. And so I am not a huge camper at all, right? And every time I've gone camping, by the way, like it hasn't gone well. But this is the image, right? And I can identify because we have a large family. Um, If they say that the tent actually sleeps six people, it doesn't right? I mean, I mean, that's kind of what's going on here. I mean, this is a group of people. Um, yeah, like we need one that says it'll sleep 12, right? And that barely is enough. But this is a picture. This is a, you know, kind of a, a nomadic people, and they are meant to be the people of God and to reflect him. And they had completely failed at that, right? They were supposed to model to the world what it looked to be in relationship with God. But God says, despite all of that, I'm going to make you into a bigger tent because um, this message is too good to be for one group of people. It's going to be for cities and nations, right? And that's why we try to give expression to both being faithful to reach our neighborhoods and the nations. You're going to hear us say that over and over, right? So if we just are faithful at reaching the nations and our neighborhoods are going to hell, like we are, like it undoes the reality of the truth of what God is doing for us. We want to be a group of people that are faithful in our neighborhoods and the nations. And and really, those two things should fuel each other. Every time that we go towards the nations, it should fuel faithfulness at home. And every time that we're faithful at home and we see people come to faith in Jesus, it should make us want to go to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're about. We're going to 
pursue both of those things wholeheartedly. And it should never cease to amaze us that God uses incredibly flawed people like us to spread his word, right? I mean, if this was just about our faithfulness, I mean, who can open up their mouths? But God says, right, this isn't based on who you are and what you've done, your failures, your past. This is based on my faithfulness. And I love, look at verse 1. It says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So, there's probably no more painful experience that I've walked through with people over the years than people that want to have children and can't have children. All throughout Scripture, God shows a special regard for people in that plight. And he doesn't use this image to bring up pain, but he wants to contrast it with the joy that's available, right? I mean, can you imagine being someone that's told that you could never have children and then finding out that you're going to give birth or you're going to have children in your home, right? There's rejoicing. Something that was not fruitful is going to be fruitful. That's exactly what God is promising to do. They were unfaithful. They were unfruitful. But God says, I'm going to make you fruitful, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. And it says to sing and to rejoice, right? I love that because um, there's an aspect when we sing this morning, we sing, let it echo to the cities and to the nations. Like part of that is a prayer for us as a people, but there also is just this aspect where this is an absolute certainty from God because of what Jesus has done, right? So we're declaring it to our own hearts so that we can live in the good of it. So there's supposed to be something that happens when we come together and when we sing and we rejoice. We're singing like it's already done because it's happened because of the fruitfulness of who Jesus is in Isaiah chapter 53. Through the sending of Jesus, we will be fruitful. Recently, I, uh, I read about how bamboo grows. So I don't know. There may be some horticulturalists in here. I have a brown thumb. I would have no idea. Bamboo um, takes a lot of patience and a lot of diligence. You plant the seeds. You water the seeds for days and weeks and months, and you know what happens? Absolutely nothing. You have to keep bamboo watered and a certain amount of sunlight on it for five full years before you see anything, right? So it's, all this stuff is happening underneath the surface. But then, after year five, in six weeks, it grows over 90 feet tall, right? And God doesn't use the example of bamboo, but he does describe his kingdom like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds, right? But then when it grows, it grows into this beautiful big plant that takes up room where birds can find refuge, right? So I think what God's saying to us through this passage is it doesn't really matter if you can discern God's activity or not in your life or you can discern it inside this church. It's certain and it's true Because the power is in the message and the seed itself. And the seed that bears fruit 
is Jesus. He's the one that laid down his life so that things grow. We can plant and we can water, but only God makes things grow. And if you, I mean, honestly, if you feel like um, you've gone too far, um, that maybe your best days are behind you, just want to encourage you that we serve a God of resurrection, that he really wants to meet you and revive you and cause areas of your life that have grown dormant to bear much fruit. The next picture that we see in Isaiah 54 is that of uh, a wife that is comforted and restored to the husband's love. Look at verses 4 through 8. It says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and that is a promise. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of her of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So this is a promise for people that were unfaithful. God says, I'm going to return to you. I'm going to comfort you with my presence. I'm going to bring healing. I'm going to bring restoration. He says, I'm never, ever going to turn my back on you again, right? I'm going to pursue you with everlasting love. Most of the people inherently, like inside this room and outside these walls, think that God is the person that brings shame and reproach on them when they do something wrong, right? It's our default wiring. Shame is is something that is that plagues both us individually and us as a city. Shame is that core belief that we are unworthy of connection with God and with other people, right? And so you can sit in a room just like this and feel isolated and alone. God says, I came not to highlight shame, but to cover shame so that you will remember it no more. What he came into this world to do is to send his son in our place to wash away all of the things that we've done wrong, but also to give us a new core identity that's not based on what we do or what we don't do, but based on the faithfulness of Jesus who faithfully followed Jesus, or Jesus who faithfully followed his father all the way to the cross. So, I mean, there's just so many people. That's one of the things that we're passionate about as a church is not allowing the the message of Jesus to be abstract and allow it to not really function in the core things of our hearts. That that God is a God that comes into the world. He wants to cover our shame, but he also wants to use us to remove the shame of other people. God is faithful, and he wants to redeem and to restore the way that we view ourselves 
And, and then when we encounter brokenness in our world, we're not going to view them on the basis of what they've done or what they've not done. We're going to view them on behalf of what God wants to do in and through them. The third image in this passage is about a desolate and a broken city being restored to beauty. Look at verses 10 through 12. For the mountains made apart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And then if you are suffering here this morning, or you are wrecked with anxiety, hear this. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and your walls of precious stones. So this is a picture of a city that's being renewed. It's been overrun. It's been besieged because of the brokenness of the world. And what God says is, I want to take you personally, and I want to move you from being a broken down city, and I want to join you with other people so that you display the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Jesus. That's what the church is, right? This isn't just a place where we come in and we sit down and try to get some goods and services from the church. This is about being joined together as one spirit with other people so that we can display the beauty of Jesus Christ. And God takes ordinary, flawed people when they fix their eyes on the Messiah who is Jesus and he makes them beautiful. Right? Not just because they get it all right all the time, but because they're looking at the same thing. Right? I mean, the more that you look at Jesus, the more that you will reflect him. And listen, not only is that true for us individually, but God's redemption plan for this city is absolutely beautiful. Right? If you, and we're going to spend a lot of time this fall talking about this, if God could open our eyes just a degree to what he wants to do here in our city, right? It would change us forever. Recently, I listened to um, a podcast, and it, it just had a phrase that's just stuck with me, and I, I think it's something for us. It's the idea of t- to see God's redemption plan for our city means getting in touch with our spiritual roots, right? So we need to learn the spiritual story of our city. And uh, I, I was doing some research a couple years ago, uh, and I came across this story. Now, when I moved here uh, seven years ago, uh, I don't know if someone told us this or we just noticed it, but Jonesboro is full of banks and churches. So I don't know if you notice. Amen? Okay, amen? All right. I think I know why the banks are here, but I, 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 at the time, it was not immediately apparent to me why the number of churches compared to relatively small amount of people. And I came across this story. One of the things that Jonesboro is most famous for is the church wars of Jonesboro. Have you heard of this? All right. All right. I, I've, I've, I've had this confirmed on a number of sites, but I'm reading from Wikipedia. Um, this, is not to, this is not to throw shade on anyone, okay? But this is to help us get in touch with the spiritual roots of this city, which have been laid in disunity, right? People fight over the smallest things. I don't know if this was the first account of it, but it is certainly an expression of it. It happened, and it centered around a man named Joe Jeffers. At the age of 20, 
1918, he was ordained as a Baptist minister. And he started his career as an actor and a comedian. And then he later turned into a traveling evangelist. On June 29, 1930, Jeffers was invited by the First Baptist Church in Jonesboro Bible College to Craighead County, Arkansas, to begin a series of tent revival meetings. His meetings gained popularity, and he preached June through early August when the pastor of First Baptist, named A.W. Reeves, resigned. The congregation then elected Jeffers. Later, a large percentage of the congregation claimed that they were not represented, and they called for a revote. And instead of the congregation, they chose a different man, Dow Hurd of Big Spring, Texas. While the agreement was being reached, Jeffers took a leave of absence, and once he had heard that Hurd had been elected, he left to continue his traveling ministry. All right, fast forward. August 1931, Jeffers returns to Craighead County to inaugurate an ongoing revival. His sermons included warning that the second coming was to occur in May 1932, and he accused both Hurd and the mayor, Herbert Bossler, of immoral activity. On September 9th, a brawl broke out between Jeffers and Hurd supporters at the First Baptist Church. This gets better. George L. Cox, a Jeffers supporter, was decided as the aggressor and was to be tried the next day, so he gets arrested The following day, Jeffers led a group of his supporters to the courthouse to protest Cox's arrest. During a a prayer at the protest, Jeffers asked God to strike the mayor dead. Jeffers supporters also attacked Mayor Bossler and the police chief, W.C. Craig. Governor Harvey Parnell allowed the use of state troops at the Arkansas State College, and I believe this is on Main Street, and other troops around the state to occupy Craighead County. The occupation also included the use of a military observation plane. The troops stationed themselves throughout the town and Jeffers' tent, which held crowds of 5,000 people, and there were only 10,000 people that lived in Jonesboro at the time. By September 14th, the troops were withdrawn, but two days later, on September 16th, a tear gas bomb was dropped outside Jeffers' tent, and tensions continued to grow when 21 of Jeffers' followers were expelled from First Baptist Church. And on October 25th, Jeffers' revival tent was burned down, and the herd supporters claimed that it was a false flag of operation and was used to slander them and gain support for Jeffers. Okay, so that's a long story that illustrates the spiritual climate of our city, right? Our city is not famous for the unity and the love of Jesus, right? Churches fight about the smallest and the most trivial of things. And I don't bring that to our attention to say this is where we're at, but to say we have such an opportunity to build something better, right? I believe what God wants to do and why he's bringing such a, a people from all parts of the country here is so that we can build something together that reflects the love and the unity of Jesus, right? And it has to begin in this room. So, you know, we, we want to allow God's spirit to make us into one people where we're able to be not a broken down city that fights with each other and troops have to be called in. We want to be a group of people that, that reflect the beauty and the majesty of Jesus where we shine like stars to the world.
So what does this mean for us practically? Very practically, this means for us we need to make room in our relationships. Right? So if we believe that God wants to make things grow, this means that we make room in our relationships. And, and, and so many of you have already signed up for gospel communities and you have embraced this. But this means that, you know, for some people, like they've been friends for a long time. That means the relational pattern is changing some. And that means welcoming other people in and allowing them to sit at your table and allowing people to benefit from having diverse kinds of friendships. So we want to make room in our relationships. This also, um, Lynette mentioned this this morning, one of our passions as a church is that we would grow and that we would reflect diversity. Not just the diversity of our city, right? That would be a good goal, but we don't want to be just as diverse as our city. We want to be as diverse as the kingdom of God, right? Because that's, that's where we're all headed, right? Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. And to do that, you know what's going to have to happen? Not only do we need to make room in our relationships, we also need to be ready to lay down our preferences, right? Because the gospel is unchanging, but the forms that we celebrate the gospel and we try to live out the gospel can always change. So we have to be willing to say, listen, everybody has preferences. Everybody has certain kinds of music they like. They have certain kinds of preaching that they like. But what we have to ask ourselves, are we primarily here for us? right? Is this church about my preferences and my needs being met, or is it about God using and making us to be something that reflects his kingdom? So that means all of us, right, are going to have to lay down our preferences in some way to allow God to do what he has promised to do. So we want to lay down our preferences and hold loosely them. But it also means that we need to make room in our structure, and that's exactly what we're doing, right? We're launching new gospel communities so that we can serve more people. So on a very just basic level, right, I mean, we've expanded the number of groups that we have. And and to be honest, the response has been overwhelming. And we are so grateful for that. But that also leaves a vacuum that we're going to need more leaders, both men and women, to be trained. And so if you want to be equipped for that, we are so excited to be able to do that for you. So we're making room in our structure to equip you because we believe that we're going to need all kinds of leaders um, from every walk of life. So we're making room in our structure. But this is it. So what's our strategy as a church? It's not complex. This is the irreducible minimum. How are we going to reach the nation of Haiti? How are we going to bear fruit when we go to Asia and Nepal? How are we going to reach the neighborhood that's right behind us? This is our strategy. Disciples who make disciples, churches that plant churches, and gospel partnership between like-minded churches. Sounds a lot like the New Testament, right? We're going to do it one life at a time, right? And we believe that the church is the hope of the world. We support all kinds of... um, ministries that are outside the church, but they're to really reflect and to change a culture. It means a gospel people coming together to affect that culture and live out an alternative story, 
right? So there's all kinds of things that can help us to do that, and we're excited about that. But what we are about is disciples that make disciples, churches that plant churches, and partnering together with other churches to see the gospel go as far as God will allow. So how do we do that? Well, we want to gather well, right? So what we do here matters. We want to gather well. This is our come and see ministry. Like in Jesus's lifetime, when he was calling the disciples to himself, there were Philip and Bartholomew, and they said, come and see a man that told me everything that I've ever done, right? A guy that knows me inside and out. So that's the come and see. So to do that, quite practically, that means um, you have to be here, right? I mean, there's no substitute for um, gathering well, like if you're not here. So I'm, we're not legalistic. We're not taking role. But there is a sense that this is part of God's plan to equip you to be a missionary to the city. Like, We'll end up building something really freaky if we only have people that want to scatter really well or if we just have people that really want to gather well. Those things have to go together. So we have to be here. We have to bring the gifts and skills. Maybe you've heard that somewhere that God's given you, right? Those need to come to bear on what we do here, right? So that, and it can be just as simple as like you pray for the meeting before you come. And you ask God to actually meet us and fill us with um, his spirit and meet us with his presence. Because what we do in this room either authenticates our message or it takes away from it, right? We either sing like what we believe is true or we just kind of mouth the words and we hope what we're saying is true. So we want to ask that God would breathe his spirit on what we do here. It says um, in the book of 1 Corinthians that that there's supposed to be something that happens when the people of God come together that authenticates the message to whether you're a believer in Jesus or you're new to the faith that says, hey, God is truly at work among these people. So that's what we're asking God. So we want to gather well, um, but we also want to scatter well. And we do that through our gospel communities. That is our go and tell ministry. Not only do we want people to come here and see and taste that the Lord is good, but we also want to see them. I mean, we want to go out and we want to tell them. That means that we tell each other the gospel, and it also means that we go um, and we tell the gospel to our city, and we want to do that. And that's why we're doing this series, so that we can go more in depth of how we do and why we do the things that we do. Our gospel communities are our structure for discipleship and for mission. So that's really all we got, you know? So this is an opportunity for you to get plugged in and to understand a little bit more about Jesus, to link arms with other people, and then in a smaller setting be able to display the same things that we try to display here, where you learn to love one another and serve one another and care for one another and reach out together and paint a picture of the beauty of Jesus. So we want to gather well, we want to scatter well, and we want to allow God to build us into this beautiful city that tells his story. Let's pray. God, thank you for just your greatness. Thank you that you love us and you've given yourself for us. Thank you that you want to use us. I I pray that just in these moments that you would cement in our hearts why we are here. Um, I pray that anyone that feels lost or alone, 
storm-tossed and afflicted would receive ministry from you. I pray for the lonely to be set into families, both literally and spiritually. I pray that you help us all come together to paint a better picture of what you're like than just us individually can do. I pray that you help us to gather well and to scatter well, to be able to show the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So over the next couple weeks, we're going to go a little bit more in depth about how we're going to try to accomplish those things inside of a gospel community. Thank you for all of you that have signed up. There is just, it is our greatest joy to be able to serve you in, in a real way, both in spirit and in truth. And we want you to encounter the real Jesus. Um, we're going to continue to worship this morning by celebrating communion together. There's going to be four stations around this room that really have a a living picture of what Jesus is like and why all of this is possible. The idea of fruit comes because the Savior of the world came to lay down his life. The bread represents his body that's broken for us and broken for our city. The cup represents his blood that washes away all of our sins and also offers hope of renewal to our city. And so as we share this meal together today, I want you to have in view not just your own self, but what God wants to do through you as you've tasted that the Lord is good, that he wants to actually use you to tell that message to other people with a group of people. Um, So if you would like to participate in this meal, the first half of the room come to the front two tables. The back half of the room can go to the back two tables. You just tear off a little piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup. Um, And that is just a symbol of your faith that you've placed in Jesus. Um, You can come and you can take the elements as you're ready.